the most remarkable success story in the agricultural history of the United States, if not the world. The soybean has risen, metaphorically, from rags to riches in the space of one lifetime. In the 1920s, it was a little-known American forage crop, which many farmers believed would never amount to as much as a cash crop or food crop. In 1942, America passed both China and Manchuria to become the world's leading soybean-producing nation, and by 1969 was producing over 76% of the world's soybeans. By 1973, soybeans had become America's number one cash crop and leading export commodity ahead of both wheat and corn. That's an excerpt from an unpublished manuscript called History of Soybeans and Soy Foods, 1100 BC to the 1980s by William Sherliff and Akiko Aoyagi. Granted, a lot has changed between the 1980s and today in 2023, but this work by Sherliff and Aoyagi posted on the Soy Info Center website was invaluable for today's episode on the history of the U.S. soybean industry, and I thought that passage there was a great place to start. Now, as you may be gathering, I decided to try something new for this episode of the podcast. For years, I've kicked around an idea of doing some episodes that are in some ways, the exact opposite of what I normally do on this show. Uh, instead of talking to someone else about the future of agriculture, I wanted to instead try to dig up lessons and insights from our industry's past. Some occasional episodes that study the history of agriculture, or at least some aspect of the history of agriculture, and that's what I'm hoping to do with you here today. I hope you'll stick around and see how this goes. The timing for this worked out in part because I am kicking off a new quarter with a new quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is the Soy Checkoff. Now, the Soy Checkoff didn't ask me to do an episode on the history of the soybean. In fact, they don't even know I'm doing this. I hope it's okay, but I thought it would be great timing to test this new experimental format. Before we dive into it, though, here's a brief word from the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders to implement it. And that's your soy checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line, having a sound plan delivers results. And you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways the soy checkoff is moving soy forward at unitedsoybean.org. Thank you so much to the soy checkoff for sponsoring this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, it probably goes without saying, but I, I guess I'm going to say it anyway. Studying the past is one of the most important activities for not only gaining perspective on the current state of the industry, but also to zoom out a little bit and get a better vantage point for where things might be going from here and what factors might drive things in that direction. And that's why, perhaps ironically, studying the history of agriculture is essential for a podcast that claims to be about the future of agriculture. Plus, I think most of you, just like me, are a little bit nerdy about agriculture and enjoy knowing more about its history. And trust me, the stories we have for you today are just so compelling, at least to me. I, I have just been energized by the whole process of putting this podcast together. 
One of the things that's held me back, though, from ever trying one of these episodes on the history of agriculture is that I worried it could very easily devolve into a boring lecture of random facts and names and dates that really didn't provide any real context. So I wondered, what is the FOA approach to learning more about the history of agriculture? And I came up with this sort of premise that uh, we'll loosely follow here today, which is I want to focus on a specific person or persons who I wish I had the opportunity to interview had we lived during the same time. And then hopefully that individual story or that group of people's stories can provide insights and context into the time in a relatable way and allow us to connect those experiences to our current situations. Now, keep in mind, this is an experiment. So if you like it or if you don't like it, either way, I'd love to know. Just uh, email me, Tim at agred.com, where you've probably heard all the other places you can find me. All right, let's get into it here. Today's guest that I wish I could interview if he was still alive today is William Joseph Morse, considered by many to be the father of the U.S. soybean industry. When William graduated from Cornell with a Bachelor's of Science in Agriculture in 1907, he started his job two days later at the age of 24 with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was hired as an agristologist. That's a term I don't really know is used anymore. At least I hadn't really heard about it. But agristology is the study of grasses which is a little odd because he would end up studying soybeans, not a grass. Whether he knew it or not, soybeans would become his focus for his entire 42-year career, all at USDA. What's incredible is that during that time, the U.S. soybean industry really didn't exist. It would grow during his time at USDA from an obscure forage crop sparsely grown in parts of the southeast to one of the three most important cash crops in the country, grown on when he retired over 11 million acres. Now, today that number is over 80 million acres, but the meteoric rise of the soybean during just William Morris's life was incredible, unprecedented, and we may never see anything like it again. Or will we? Well, it's an interesting thought on its own. I try to think about it, though, like something like that happening today. I mean, think about hemp and all the hype that had. And I think despite all that hype and all that media attention, something like 7000 acres today is grown in the U.S. I mean, still almost nothing. But in one man's career, he saw the birth and growth of a major industry that is one of the most important crops grown in American agriculture today, arguably the most important. Now, how, how did this happen and what were the catalysts for this type of growth and what lessons might we pull from this for today's agriculture? and the agriculture we want to see in the future. And that's what I want to explore, of course. But, but I think it's important to, to set the scene here and note that commercial soybean production was not new in concept. Uh, the soybean plant had been domesticated over thousands of years by Chinese farmers. Primarily, they had figured out how to take the wild glycine soja, which is an annual plant that kind of looks like morning glory that climbs and trails and turn that into the commercial variety grown today, which is glycine max. That domestication process over all those hundreds of years involved getting the plant to stand upright and to produce larger seeds. So they developed several staple soy based dishes that spread throughout various parts of China and other parts of Asia, including tofu, miso, tempeh, and several others. This grew to be a big industry. And at the time, William Morris was starting to work at the USDA in 1907. China and Manchuria, which would later become part of China, produced something like 88% of the world's soybeans, so pretty much all of them. And soybeans had already made it 
to the USA. In fact, Ben Franklin wrote a letter clear back in 1770 while traveling in London, espousing the benefits of the soy plant and its potential for cultivation in the US. Now, that's way back in 1770, so so well over 100 years before William Moore started. And uh, Ben Franklin may or may not have known that English entrepreneur, farmer, and seaman Samuel Bowen had about the same idea at about the same time. In 1765, he brought the first recorded soybean seeds to the U.S., brought them to the state of Georgia, where they were planted near Savannah. But in that 142 years between Samuel Bowen and Ben Franklin and William Morris going to work for USDA, really not much had happened with the soybean. I mean, they were mostly planted for forage, for livestock, and, and as a cover crop between primary crops, but they hadn't really traveled too far from Georgia. Most of the small amount of production had stayed in the Southeast. And William Morse was blessed to be in the right place at the right time, probably much more than he realized. His immediate boss at USDA was a guy named Dr. Charles V. Piper, Charles Vancouver Piper, who's credited with being the first man to truly see the vision for what soybeans could be in America. Uh, Piper ended up being a mentor and a huge influence on Morse's life and work and in turn the creation of the soybean industry. William Morse was paid 900 bucks a year and his first responsibilities were to grow and test soybeans at the Arlington Farm in Virginia. Now, to give you an idea of the soybean industry at that time, if you can really even call it an industry, in 1909, so two years into William's work, it's estimated that there were somewhere around 16,385 bushels of soybeans produced in the whole country on 1,629 acres. That's a tiny, tiny yield of 10 bushels per acre. And in today's term, the national average yield is somewhere around 50 bushels an acre. So it would take only 328 acres to produce that that national total, uh, which obviously is not even a very big farm today. Anyway, all that to say there was no soybean production to speak of in those days. So what changed? Well, this is actually one of my takeaways from studying the rise of the soybean industry. It was definitely that several factors contributed over a long period of time, but it comes down to a small group of true believers, and especially the one we're focusing on today, William Morse. He worked nonstop as a young guy straight out of Cornell, seemingly from the day he was hired to do research, to develop varieties, advise farmers, collect seed, experiment with soy use cases, call on mills and processors, and really do whatever it took to get this industry going. Uh, he would take bags of soybean seed via train from Northern Virginia down to North Carolina, where there were more farmers growing soybean really for, for forage. Uh, then he would rent a wagon and a team of horses and go farm to farm, uh, talking really to any farmer who would listen to try to get them to try the soybeans he was developing and give him feedback and to kind of do this iterative process of developing uh, the genetics for the soybeans and the production practices for the soybeans in the U.S. Now, while down there, he would try to get cotton mills to consider crushing some of these soybeans since they were already crushing cotton uh, unsuccessfully, I should say, for a number of years. And he soon became the head of the USDA's Office of Soybean Investigations. And the work was paying off, I would say, but but it was paying off very, very slowly. I don't want to skip over, though, the significance that I mentioned earlier of William Morse's boss, Charles Piper. Uh, it's clear to me that Piper's excitement and passion for soybeans spread really quickly to Morse uh, because he, he, like I said, he kind of hit the ground running with this. The two talk extensively. They work tirelessly both evenings and weekends throughout their working. Um, Piper was referred to by several colleagues as the prophet 
And in a 1942 book called Gold from the Soil, Piper is quoted as telling Morse, these beans are gold from the soil. One must truly stand in awe of their potential power in the life of the Western world. So he saw it before anyone else. And from their efforts, Piper began publishing articles on soybeans in 1909 and then went to India in 1911 and brought back 108 varieties of soybeans from Asia. When Piper eventually died, uh, this would be in 1926, actually, sadly, just about three weeks after William Morse's baby son died as well. Um, Morse addressed the American Soybean Association and said this. He said, I wish to pay a brief tribute to a man who more than two decades ago very frequently prophesied that the soybean would in the not distant future be one of the major farm crops, especially in the eastern half of the country. Piper was responsible for the many hundreds of introductions received from the soybean regions of the Orient. Not only was Dr. Piper interested in the development of new varieties, and he held this of great importance, but he also urged a greater utilization of the soybean as an oil crop for human food in various forms and a more general use for pasturage and forage purposes. We of the association owe much to Dr. Piper, and I know of no greater tribute to the man than to carry on his work and fulfill his prophecy. Those comments were made at the annual field meeting of the American Soybean Association, which, by the way, William Morris helped to found in 1920. One of my takeaways from all, all this research is the power of vision and the power of mentorship. Both of those were embodied in Dr. Charles Piper and carried forward uh, in his mentee, William J. Morse. Uh, before Piper's death in 1923, so three years before his death, he and Morse published a book called The Soybean History Varieties and Field Studies, which is an extraordinarily detailed book and sort of an accumulation of the 17 years of work they had done together at that point. Uh, they really had to do so much of the work on their own. In fact, the book was published one year before the USDA even officially began keeping records of soybean production in America. So it really was them out on their own and kind of making things happen. I, I personally relate to William Morse's story in this way. He, I mean, he started his career in 1907, exactly 100 years before I started mine in 2007. So in the same amount of time I've been in the working world, so 16 years now from 07 to 23, William Morse amassed a body of work and published it that would contribute to changing the agricultural landscape in America forever. You're going to hear some more evidence of the importance of this book in a few minutes. And actually, you can still order it. My copy is in route from Amazon. I can't wait to read it after doing so much research on Morse and Piper preparing for this episode. Well, they earned every bit of credit I'm giving to them. It's also important to note that during the 1920s, the industry although still small, started to get some steam, started to aggregate a little bit. Uh, plant collectors and breeders, agronomists, farmers, farm machinery makers, researchers, processors, marketers all started to take interest in soybean. And it was their collective efforts together that really created the birth of this industry. Uh, just to give you an idea, during the 1920s, what was driving uh, the further growth of soybeans, nearly 3,000 varieties at that point had been introduced in the early 20th century. Uh, the combine was adapted to harvesting soybeans during that time. Commercial inoculation had started becoming much more common to further boost soybean yields. There were also some tariffs in early 20s, 1920, 
two, I believe, that were levied on imports of soybeans and soy oil. And research was starting to be fruitful on using soy protein and oil for industrial purposes as well. So I want to emphasize here two ideas that might in some contexts seem a little bit contradictory. Number one, it can take a very long time and an incredible amount of thankless effort to see a vision for the future of agriculture become a reality. But also, number two, it takes more than just one person or one company to change a system as complex as food and agriculture. It's the convergence of the various efforts and the various vantage points that really help to fuel real growth in this case of this burgeoning industry in the 1920s. But I think about that today as well. Like I can have somebody on here who has a compelling vision and they're doing great things. But if the system doesn't start to coalesce around them, in some way, it might be very, very difficult to to catalyze those efforts into real change. And, and that's what I think about when I think about the first six years or so of doing this podcast is like, man, what has changed? And I really wish more had changed. And that should be discouraging. And the reason why it's not is people like William Morris that put so much effort into the vision before they have any indication that that vision is sort of becoming a reality. But then as people start to coalesce around the vision, as conditions change, as different things happening in the world uh, add to this body of work that he's developed, you really start to see the birth uh, of, it, of a real industry. And, and I'll share more details about what I mean by that. But anyway, I think about that in today's context, especially as I reflect on the guests we've had on this show. All right. Well, as I mentioned, Piper died in 1926 and Morse carried on the work from there. In 1929, this is so cool to me, Morse went on a soybean exploration trip to East Asia for two years. Up and left, he's 45 at this time, up and left, brought his wife and seven-year-old daughter with him on a ship from the U.S. over to Asia. The goals of the expedition, which went to Japan, Korea, Manchuria, and China, were to number one, collect soybean varieties and soybean products, and then number two, learn as much as possible about the growing and processing of soybeans over there. So he was going back where they've been doing this for centuries to learn about the products, processes, and varieties they had and, and to bring that back for uh, U.S. farmers to benefit from from there. So, so cool. He was almost like a soybean spy, although that, I'm sure that's totally the wrong term to use in this context. But it, but I, I mean, I just think about a mission to improve agriculture by very literally going and learning in another country. That's like my dream, uh, maybe someday. The trip was a huge success and uh, Morse cites it as one of the highlights to his illustrious career. Just think about the dedication here to the cause of advancing soybeans. I mean, I'd like to think we still have people like this in our industry today. In fact, I, I, I know we do. I, I've, I've had some on the show here, but people who just at great personal sacrifice dedicate everything they have to advancing their corner of the ag industry for a better food system to realize a vision that is, is far from reality in the, in the current state that the world is in. I don't know. I'm just so inspired by this and um, definitely want to be more like that in my own efforts and want to find more stories like that uh, today. People really putting it on the line. And I don't mean, you know, like staking the 401k on it. I mean, this guy uprooted his wife and seven-year-old daughter for two years to take a ship across the Pacific Ocean to, get, to go visit East Asia to learn more about soybeans. I mean, that is hardcore. I don't know. I just love that. How amazing it would have been to be on the expedition and, uh, you know, there with the ultimate soybean nerd of William Morse and and learning about this stuff from from people who've been doing it for generations and generations. Just incredible. I mean, I would love to interview 
someone like William Morris someday in person. Well, throughout his career, he seems to get more and more interested in the soy food side of the industry. I, I wonder if that's maybe because there were more innovations happening. And like we said, there's more people coalescing around the production of soybeans. And he decided to focus his efforts on on sort of demand building, capacity building. I don't know that, but but I wonder if that might be the case. He practiced what he preached to and ate a variety of soy foods in his diet on a regular basis. Uh, a big part of what he brought back from his trip to East Asia was over 300 soybean products. And as you might imagine, some didn't travel too well across the ocean in a ship, but these soy foods and these soy products were a big part of what he brought back with him from, from East Asia. And also a new type of soybean bean to him, a vegetable type of soybean called edamame, which you may have enjoyed, especially at your favorite sushi restaurant, which is where I usually eat edamame. But he brings back 100 different varieties to try to cultivate and popularize in the U.S. Now, to some extent, that was successful, but I think to a much, much lesser extent than the actual you know, commodity crop we know as soybeans. But uh, important to note that 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 caught his interest as well. All right, Morse arrived back from East Asia in 1931, so a two-year trip over there to those countries, and I would imagine he was delighted to hear that a prominent American industrialist was becoming increasingly more and more infatuated with soybeans. Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motor Company, had been interested in finding ways to relate technology and industry to agriculture. He was quoted as saying, if we want the farmer to be our customer, we must find a way to be his customer. In 1929, Ford built a laboratory in the Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan, to try to find new ways to help farmers out of the hard times brought on by the Great Depression. Cool enough, Thomas Edison was a regular visitor and consultant to the laboratory, and it was there that Ford's team of researchers conducted experiments on almost every farm crop known at the time and found soybeans to be the most promising for production in Michigan that could serve both food and industry. And it was around the time that Morse was coming back from Asia in 1931 that Ford read a book called The Soybean by Piper and Morse, which he read cover to cover and seemed to really fuel his enthusiasm for the crop. Throughout the 30s, he became a big advocate for soybeans, from encouraging farmers to plant it, to finding industrial uses, to researching processes and equipment. By 1935, he was using about a bushel of soybeans. In every Ford vehicle, they went into the paint and molded plastics of each Ford car. He really was, in so many ways, a visionary. I know whenever you cover history, you're going to get somebody to say, well, he's problematic for this reason, problematic for that reason. And, and I get that. I'm not trying to belittle that. But when I'm looking in the context of this episode about the history of the soybeans, he really was a visionary and had visions of sort of a, a circular type economy in which an industrial company like his would buy soybeans and soybean products, so either directly or indirectly from farmers, and then farmers would turn around and, and buy his vehicles. On multiple occasions, he remarked that, quote, someday you and I will see the day when auto bodies will be grown down on the farm, end quote. Now, we're still waiting on that day, but I think this is way ahead of his time when it comes to all the sustainability we talk about today and circularity. He was thinking about it. He was thinking, how can we more closely connect technology, industry, and farming? And I think we're still wrestling with those same questions, but certainly a visionary well ahead of his time. I thought this was cool, too. He also became really interested in soy foods, including soy milk, which I had no idea went back that far. I thought it was like a modern day invention, but apparently he was a huge fan of soy milk 
as well. Eventually, he would start wearing a suit made of 25% soybean wool to further promote the crop, but it actually wasn't just a gimmick. He opened a plant for making soy wool in hopes of replacing some of the wool he was importing for the upholstery in those Ford cars at the time. So kind of crazy. Uh, it doesn't seem to have stuck. The soy wool doesn't seem to have stuck around very much. But interestingly enough, the same process his scientists used to make that soybean wool is the process used today, more or less, to make soy-based protein for meat substitutes. So, I mean, it just goes to show you that only time will tell if an innovation will be useful, even if it's not useful in its first iteration. So there's no doubt that Ford's status, you know, his celebrity, his showmanship, uh, his reputation and his investments in research were a boon for the soybean industry. But I also think it needs to be put in context of the decades of work that William Morris had been doing over at USDA, that uh, soybeans were poised for someone like Ford to come around only because of that groundwork that was being laid. Um, and of course, the groundwork that was laid centuries before that by uh, folks in, in Asia that domesticated the crop. So it just goes to show you that you don't know when these innovations are going to break through and you never know when one of those big turning points are going to come. And certainly a big turning point for the U.S. soybean industry. And this is probably the last one I'll talk about in this episode because we're already going a little bit longer than I wanted to happened in the 1940s. You can probably guess what that was. That was World War II. Uh, leading up to the war, America was already emerging as a major soybean producer, passing other countries like Japan, Korea, and almost overtaking Manchuria. But once the war hit, there was a huge need uh, in the U.S. for domestic sources of fats, oils, and protein due to the war and supply chains getting cut off and just shifting global dynamics. At that time, and I didn't realize this, America had been importing around 40% of its edible fats, and oils. Amazingly, in this time, U.S. farmers were able to double domestic production in one single year from 1941 to 1942. And I mean, this isn't like going from zero to one here, right? There are already some momentum being built through the 30s. But in one single year, U.S. farmers doubled their production from 1941 to 1942, passing in just that one year, the top two producers of soybeans, Manchuria and China, to become the world's leading soybean producer in one year. But that didn't end after that year. It didn't end after the war. The uh, U.S. would remain the world leader for several years, I think, until Brazil overtook the U.S. in soybean production in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm sure there's some World War II experts listening to this. I know there's a lot of you in World War II enthusiasts out there that could speak to the significance the soybean industry had for the country during this time of war. But the farmers and the industry as a whole sure seem to have come through when America needed them most. So that's a pretty amazing story to me. Since the 1950s now, global soybean production has increased 15-fold. The U.S. today produces over 4 billion bushels per year of soybeans on about 87 million acres. A mind-boggling change from when William Morris started at the USDA. Now, change in agriculture does happen. I believe it. I wouldn't do the show if I didn't. It can happen. It often Though, takes time and won't happen on your timeline or my timeline. It rarely happens the way gurus and experts tell you it will. It rarely happens the way investors tell you it will. It rarely happens the way entrepreneurs tell you it will. But stories like this of William Morris, of Charles Piper, of Henry Ford, of the birth of the U.S. soybean industry 
give me hope and give me encouragement to keep pressing forward with finding these stories and digging out these insights and bringing people along and looking for the next William Morse. I'm going to end today's episode by reading another paragraph from Sherliff and Aoyagi's Soy Info Center. In November 1949, when Morse retired after 42 years of service, he was known throughout the world, but especially in the U.S. and East Asia, for his work on soybeans and soy foods. In 1907, when he started his work, the soybean was such a small crop that no records of its production were kept. One of the measures of the success of his work is the amazing expansion of the crop from about 2 million bushels in 1919 to 9.4 million bushels in 1929, 91 million bushels in 1939, and 200 million in 1949. William Morse would be the first to object to the simplistic notion that any man or even small group of men was primarily responsible for this great progress. But many of the hundreds of agronomists, farmers, researchers, plant scientists, food processors and industrialists who were responsible acknowledge their debt of inspiration and encouragement to Morse. Thanks so much for listening to this experimental episode of the history of agriculture on the future of agriculture. Like I said, if you like this or didn't like it either way, let me know. Tim at agrad.com, Twitter at Tim Hamrich, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That'd be fantastic telling me what you thought of the episode. I had so much fun learning about this stuff and putting this together that I sure hope you liked it because I want to do more. Thanks so much to the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring the podcast this quarter. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention, especially with it just being me. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.